Hey, it's Lily Jamali. Marketplace Tech has a new limited series out on YouTube called Decoding Democracy. With rapid advancements in new technology like AI, disinformation efforts are more convincing and more misleading than ever. So we'll be discussing how to spot things like deep fakes, how to protect yourself from disinformation, and how to talk to your friends and family about it. As always, this fact-based journalism and vital information will be free and accessible to all. As a public service newsroom, donations from you help us take on ambitious reporting projects like this one. Every single gift makes a difference. Go to marketplace.org slash give tech. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old dot-com era logo and put it on a sticker, a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash give tech. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash give tech. One expert's view of AI, we need to contain it, but also good luck with that. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Lily Jamali. When Mustafa Suleiman co-founded the AI research company DeepMind more than a decade ago, his goal at the time felt ambitious, even a bit far-fetched, to build a machine that could replicate human intelligence. Now, he says, rapid progress in the development of AI means that goal could be met within the next three years. And the implications of that milestone are huge. Suleiman explores them in his new book, The Coming Wave, which is out this week. In it, he makes the case for what he calls containment. The idea of containment is that we should always have the ability to slow down or potentially even completely stop um, any technology at any period in its development or its deployment. And it seems like a kind of simple and reasonable idea, like who would not want uh, our species to always have control and oversight over the things that we invent. But um, it is, I think, the big challenge of the next few decades, precisely because of the pace of change with AI and synthetic biology and how quickly things are improving. And in the book, it feels at times like you're arguing for containment while also making the case that, to some extent anyway, containment is impossible. Is that a fair assessment of the argument you're laying out? Yes, exactly. I think that when you look at the history of all technologies, things get cheaper and easier to use and they spread far and wide. And everything from the hand axe to the discovery of fire to the invention of steam and electricity has got cheaper and easier to use and everybody has got access. And if that is the nature you know, of technology, some kind of law of technology, then that really raises some pretty complicated questions for where we end up over the next few decades. And talk to me about that timeline. In your view, what's happening in the next 10 years or so? Also, let, let's try to be specific about the capabilities that would be concerning, right? So if you explicitly design an AI to recursively self-improve, that is that it has the power to 
modify and optimize its own code, then you're you know you're sort of closing the loop on its own agency or behavior and taking a human out of the loop. As these models get more and more widely available in open source, and you can train really powerful AI models, which today only 20 organizations in the world can actually train, if 200 million people can actually train them in a decade, which is what is likely, in fact, inevitable, given the exponential reduction in the cost of compute, then somebody is going to take that risk of tinkering and experimenting um, in a way that is potentially dangerous that might cause harmful effects as a result of an, a recursively self-improving AI. So that, that that's the kind of thing that I think we're all concerned about. And you write that containment of new technologies has always failed eventually, but nuclear weapons and nuclear technology seem to be something of an exception to that rule. Can you explain that? Yes. I mean, nuclear is an exception in the sense that, um, you know, there really are only a few nuclear powers in the world today. In fact, the number of nuclear powers has gone down from 11 to 7. Um, and we've basically spent the last 70 years reducing nuclear stockpiles, monitoring the movement of all uranium enrichment facilities, um, and very carefully sort of licensing and restricting access to knowledge and know-how of those kinds of materials and and so on. Um, and so in some ways, it's a, it's a great achievement. But unfortunately, they're quite different to artificial intelligence and synthetic biology today, in the sense that they're uh, extremely expensive to produce. They're very complicated. They involve getting access to and handling um, very dangerous radioactive materials. And um, that's quite unlike the nature of AI software and, of course, synthetic biology today, which is um, increasingly cheap and ready, readily available um, and, and, and accessible by, by millions of people. Some people listening to this may be familiar with the Turing test. This was created by computer scientist Alan Turing in 1950. And it's, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but it's meant to evaluate the intelligence of a computer by testing its written conversation abilities. Basically, if a human can't tell if they're having a conversation with a computer or with another human, we'd say that the computer has passed the test. In 2023, is this test still meaningful? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good question and one that I explore in the book because um, now that we do have AIs that are pretty much as good as a lot of humans at natural conversation, um, it's not clear whether we're any closer to knowing whether or not they're intelligent. And so the initial goal of the Turing test was, of course, to measure intelligence. But it turns out that what an AI can say isn't necessarily correlated with whether it's intelligent. So another take on this, which I think is actually more revealing and more helpful, is to try to measure what an AI can do and to instead focus on capabilities. You are proposing a modern Turing test in your book. So if you don't mind just explaining what you mean by that phrase, the modern Turing test. Yeah, exactly. So a modern Turing test that I've proposed is to give an AI a very general high-level goal. For example, um, you know, with a $100,000 investment, go and make a million dollars over the course of a few months. And the AI might interpret that goal by saying, okay, I'm going to invent a new, um, you know, type of product. And I'm going to 
research online, see what people like, what they don't like, what they might be interested in. Then I'm going to contact, you know, a manufacturer perhaps over in China for my new product. And I'm going to, you know, negotiate over the price and, you know, the the details, the blueprint of that product. And then I'm going to get it drop shipped um, and sell it on Amazon or on online somewhere and then try and create marketing materials around that. Now, that that is clearly possible just with digital tools today. And, um, you know, obviously it would require a lot of human intervention to do that. But it is increasingly possible that the entire thing might be done um, autonomously end-to-end, albeit maybe with a little bit of intervention where there are legal requirements. The goal here is not necessarily to make money. It's just to take advantage of the dollar as a unit of measurement of progress right? over some time period. If a system was capable of doing this kind of task, then we could start to understand what the implications would be for um, work in the future and for how power will proliferate. Because if you have access to one of these tools, then suddenly you know, you're capable of doing much, much, much more with less. And that changes the, the power landscape. I remember you calling yourself uh, a, a default optimist at some point in the book. And, and towards the end, you you say to the reader that you were originally planning to write a more positive book about AI, but that then your perspective changed. What caused that change? Was it the research you did, the writing process? I think the thing that has made me more concerned is when I started doing the research for the book, and I looked back at the history of containment, and there really aren't very many examples where we've said no to a technology. You know, I spend most of the first third of the book incredibly optimistic and enamored by technology. I love technology. I'm a, I'm a creator and a builder and a maker, and um, you know, it inspires me every day to make things and do things. So it's a hard realization to also accept that um, technology is getting smaller and more powerful at the same time. And when you roll that out, you know, for 10 or 20 years, it just opens this fundamental question of what do these models look like in 20 years? You know, what, what, what does it mean that we will be able to engineer synthetic life? And so introducing friction into that process, introducing human oversight and traditional governance is the way that we can make sure it, you know, we have the best chance of making it accountable to democratic governments and to the public interest in general. That was Mustafa Suleiman. His new book, The Coming Wave, is out this week. Something tends to happen as companies race to dominate an emerging technology. They compete, but once regulators get involved, they cooperate. AI is no different. In July, seven leading AI companies based in the U.S. met with President Biden and agreed to safeguards to manage the risks of new AI tools. Mustafa Suleiman was there and explained to us those companies will audit their models, try to break them, and then share with each other best practices discovered in the process. Here's the catch. That commitment is voluntary for now, a step Suleiman calls appropriate for the moment. We've got more on that on our website, marketplacetech.org, as well as analysis on whether these voluntary commitments are really just a way for AI companies to write their own rules. 
Ultimately, that's a job for Congress, whose members have entertained us with some memorable displays of ignorance on tech over the years. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer recently floated a plan to convene a panel of experts to give lawmakers an AI crash course. Rosie Hughes produced this episode. I'm Lily Jamali, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM.